Butcher? What happened? My wife. She's alive. Vault's holding the gap of somewhere. And right now, we're in a little bit of trouble. Are you fucking with us? Listen, this is a fucking mess. We're the most wanted lads in the country. We got soup terrorists. And we got no superheroes. Hi, I'm Stormfront. Who? I'm the new girl. Wonderful. What's your big plan? We'll take them for it. There we go. And I get my wife back. We're in. Of course we're in. We blow it up in the air. More super terrorists will come. For all we know, these maniacs could be waiting for their chance to kill us all. Who the fuck are you? I'm just trying to help. Really? How? We are in a war, but we can fight back with an army of supermen, millions strong. Now, don't be a pussy. Laser my fucking tits. One, two, three, hit it! She's got a whole army of supers. We cost them, too. What do we do? We can't just kill everyone. That's exactly what we're gonna do. Oh, great. Cool. Totally. We just need to keep our shit together. You guys go ahead. You guys go ahead. I'm good. All right. Hands in the air. Like you just don't care. <laughs> Kill. gentlemen to our very first spoil it episode of the underground i am jordan welcome to pop culture underground where you will get unforgiving takes passionate opinion on all things pop culture news reviews media and more from a fan just like you and baby the boys are back in town the boys season two Finally gracing our TV screens with three brand new episodes with more to come on a weekly basis on Fridays. Man, am I happy they dropped at least three. It is unfortunate that we cannot binge this whole season, but what we did get was very, very good. Welcome to the very, very first Spoil It episode of Pop Culture Underground. We are going to be spoiling and discussing The Boys Season 2 after its phenomenal 
phenomenal season one, one of the best season ones of any show that I've ever seen. And it's crazy because I feel like I've been saying that a lot lately with a lot of shows in the past five to ten years, but man, it's just true. TV is just getting better and better and better, and I think the streaming services are bringing more to the TV front, opening more doors to the TV front, and The Boys is definitely no exception after it shocked the country, shocked the world with its season one debut, and man, oh man, a season two right on track with that first season. Oh my goodness. Guys, the blood is back. The gore is back. The soups are back. We got super terrorist, super villain. Sorry, Homelander. We got Stormfront raging on the scene, and boy is she a bright spot of this new season and a very welcome addition to this new season of The Boys. Man, I am excited to go into this. But first, if this is your first time listening to Pop C Underground, I would like to thank you first and foremost and let you know a little bit of what you get here. So this is our very first Spoil It episode, which are the only episodes where we will go into deep, deep reviews and spoil anything. On my regular episodes, which will always be titled first with an episode number, we do not spoil things, at least not big time spoilers, at least not that, right? But for all the other episodes, I love to bring you 30 minutes to one hour, multiple times a week of episodes where we go over all pop culture news, reviews, media, and more right into your ear holes, right wherever you are at work, at home, walking around, drinking glasses of milk like Homelander does, even though I don't think many people do it that way. Oh my goodness, we gotta talk about that, right? Homelander's kryptonite. Man, man, oh man, I I cannot wait for this. If you cannot feel the enthusiasm and the excitement vibrating off of me right now. I don't know if you have a soul. Check your heart. I don't know if you're alive. I don't know if you're alive. But first, let's quickly get the social media content out of the way. If you would like to, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at PopCUnderground. You can send in an email to the show. Send me your review. Send me your review of the show. Send me your review of the boys. Send me your review of whatever. If you want an email right on the show, we can do that at PopCUnderground.com at gmail.com. There's also a website up. You can check that out in the show notes. I am not going to repeat the domain anymore because I hate the domain. It's complex. It's long. It's complicated. I still need to change that, get into that. Had a lot of things happen this weekend. My dog got bit by a snake and his and his freaking face swelled up like, uh, like Henry Cavill's face looked in Justice League post-CGI mustache removal. I am not kidding. He looks bad. So I had to work on that. My wife had to go to the ER with a pregnancy issue. We were just having all kinds of fun over here in this household. Thank God for the boys and the three episodes they put out because, man, it really helped me and gave me some therapy opposed to what else we were going through this weekend. Now, we are going to be reviewing The Boys, Season 2, Episodes 1 through 3, and we are going to be discussing it and rating it. I'll talk about some Easter eggs, I'll talk about some nods that the show has, I'll talk about my favorite character, all that good fun stuff. Now, if this is your first time listening or you just straight up forgot the rating system like I would not be surprised if you did. Here it is. My rating system is solely based off of my love for the Office TV show. It is my all-time favorite show. I honor it. I love it. I I love the Office so much. So I based the rating system off of the Office. So we will start at the very, very top. If I believe something is worth your time, you cannot miss it. You have to watch it or Homelander will rain down on your ass. I will give it an Undie Award. Think a Dundee Award from The Office, but an Undie Award instead for The Underground. If you do not watch The Office, get on that right now. Get off this podcast and go watch The Office and come back, because we give out Undie Awards here at Pop C Underground. Now, the next rating, if I believe it is worth your time, not the greatest thing in the world to watch, but 
does have enough to keep you entertained for a little bit. I will give it a Stanley. Now, there are good Stanleys, which represent the things I just said, and there are also bad Stanleys, which are for things that are trash, but still have a few things to hold it up and keep it from being this next rating, a Toby. Yes, a good old Toby, because we all, just like Michael Scott, hate Toby. And if your name's Toby, I'm sorry. I I don't know what to tell you. I just don't. So if it's trash, not worth your time, I will send Stormfront down on your ass. I give it a Toby. So with the rating system now in your brain, you now have the knowledge of the world. Let's go ahead and get into our boys review. So we're going to be reviewing it. We're going to be spoiling it. We're going to be breaking it down to an extent. We're going to be talking about some things that the showrunner said, that Garth Ennis himself, the writer of the comics, said, how it kind of compares to the characters in the comics. I'm going to tell you my favorite character of the first three episodes so far. And that is how we are going to do this thing. So let's kick it off with Season 2, Episode 1 of The Boys on Amazon Prime, the episode titled The Big Ride. So to kick this thing off, I actually want to talk a little bit about Garth Ennis and what he told Uprox when he spoke to them about the show on Amazon Prime and a little bit about the comic itself. So the comic started back in 2005 during the first Bush administration and the Garth Ennis pen comics actually, the, the ones that serve as the source material here, they were defined by skepticism and distrust, corporate, military, and bureaucratic interests that were increasingly merging together to entertain, distract, and subdue us, and they were using superheroes. Brands made real, brands personified, quoted by Garth Ennis himself. He said they did all of these things to explore the corruption festering under American flag capes with sneering style and archaic anger. And the second season pushes that dynamic that he just spoke about itself through a combination of further introducing a new array of new villains a new member of the Seven, a new capitalist overlord, and new religious swindlers that embody as much of our current time as Garth Ennis' original comics represented, the immediate post-9-11 era. And the premiere of The Big Ride actually reorganizes all of our familiar players and their shifting alliances. Now, in the season one finale, You Found Me, the arcs of Homelander and Billy Butcher, who is a former CIA operative turned vigilante, they collide. Butcher had actually thought for years that Homelander had raped and killed his wife, which caused his vendetta against all the superheroes, or the soups as we call them, and the Seven in particular. Now these heroes, with whom the rest of the world is obsessed with, are actually downright assholes. They're scum, they're pieces of shit, they are just terrible, terrible human beings. And it's actually, actually quite funny how bad they are in this show and how everybody looks at that, because if you read the comics at all, The comics actually makes them to be even more assholes, more pieces of shit, and and I don't even know how that's really possible. I mean, mean, I've seen some of the most downright disturbing things I've ever seen in my life in the pages of a Garth Ennis the Boys comic. It is absolutely nuts. They, They have, this is not safe for work, ladies and gentlemen, they have some extreme superhero orgies in that comic that, like, I had to do a double take and just, I don't think I could ever read again because they were just that Distur- I mean, seriously, just downright disturbing. And Homelander is right up there. Homelander is my absolute favorite character from season one, and he is so brilliantly played by Anthony Starr here in this series. And Anthony Starr himself, I actually, the first time I saw him was in the Banshee TV show, and Banshee is just a show about a guy, a, a criminal, so to speak, who's lived a criminal life within the, I don't, I don't even know if you would want to call it the mafia. It's got a lot of Amish ties and stuff. It's re, it's kind of hard to explain. You'd have to watch it. 
But he takes the mantle of a sheriff and becomes the sheriff of this town and is one straight-up badass sheriff. And I think that show brilliantly prepared him to play a phenomenal Homelander. And Anthony Starr was speaking uh, a few, actually a few times he has said this back in season one and speaking about season two, said that he actually didn't necessarily want the role of Homelander to begin with because he did not think that he could get that role as opposed to somebody like Henry Cavill. Now, thank God they did cast Anthony Starr as Homelander because he is so good as Homelander. The facial expressions that he conveys, the I'm better than you, the I do nothing can touch me, and just the the anger and the pure hatred that comes out of his eyes and his facial expressions is brilliant, and it is so well done. It almost makes you wonder if he's got some kind of personal thing going on through his acting here because it's that good. He was just brilliant as Homelander, and he brings even more of that here in season two. Now, here in season two, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now, my favorite character is straight up Stormfront. I love Stormfront. I think she is the bright, shining light of this season, and I think the giant turn that she takes in episode three is downright brilliant, and I think it was also brilliant that they gender-swapped this role because I think it makes her character in this TV show in particular that much more intriguing and has that much more of a motivation to what she's all about. Now, I don't think we necessarily know everything she's all about in this one because in the comics, Stormfront has a Nazi background and he still uses that Nazi background in his ideals in present day, in the comics in present day, that he still carries with him. Now, they haven't touched up on that at all here with Stormfront. We're only three episodes in. They definitely could go with the Nazi route. In fact, they even laid the groundwork in a way when they laid the groundwork for Soldier Boy, who's going to be played by Jensen Ackles, coming up here in Season 3. But they may have been also prefacing Stormfront's motives in her background by dropping the fact that Frederick Vought, the creator of Vought Industries, was actually an ex-Nazi scientist who Hitler himself appointed as the chief physician back in 1939, where Vought would perform unethical experimentation on human test subjects in order to develop Compound V to enhance human beings into what are known as soups. So could that possibly be one big reason why Vought decided to appoint Stormfront to the Seven without Homelander's acknowledgement? I think it's very possible. I also think it's very possible that Stormfront has been working with Vought all along. And I actually called back in in episode one and two, they touch up on this, that Stormfront may have been working for Vought and trying to get Starlight to divulge her information and her secrets about what she's been doing and how she never stopped talking to Huey. Now, that kind of prevailed in episode three where we got that big twist and saw what Stormfront really is about, but we'll get more into that, you know, with episode three. So coming back to episode one, uh, sorry, I have, a, I have a lot to say about this show. Coming back to episode one, I absolutely loved the opening. I loved the new takeover at Vought. I loved my favorite, actually my favorite part of episode one was Black Noir's entrance and the way that he just fucked up that terrorist compound, and then the way that he he hissed, but I thought that was hilarious, and I thought that was great, and I thought it was a brilliant opening to this first episode. And then I loved the funeral for Translucent. I could not stop laughing during that entire funeral, and I don't think you're supposed to be laughing at a funeral, but maybe it's okay for this one, because the see-through coffin 
had me in stitches. I was dying at the see-through coffin. I was dying at the pictures of him as a kid. You know, you can't see his face and you can't see anything but his clothes. It was it was some brilliant, some brilliant dark humor that I absolutely could not get over. And it's also important to note here that the seven have been dwindled down to the five since the deep is still not part of the seven. And how the hell did they achieve to make the deep seem even more pathetic than he already was? It's hilarious. And we will definitely, definitely get to that. Now, most of this first episode, The Big Ride, is actually all about who's in power over at Vought International after the death of Madeline Stilwell is being used to garner sympathy for their company and the Seven, while Homelander thinks that he is basically stepping into her role and he has taken over the organization in general. He straight up assaults a proposed candidate for the group named Blindspot, a complete fuck you to Marvel's Daredevil, in my opinion. <laughs> I, couldn't, I could not get over that. He uh, he then informs Ashley that he's going to handle his own agenda in marketing, which he then later gets pretty much told the opposite by Stan Edgar, who I think is one of the first people besides Madeline Stilwell who really stands up to Homelander and makes him back down. And that was very shocking to see that. And the words that Stan Edgar said were were very, very brilliant and very well said because, man, it drove home the point that he was making to Homelander that, look, dude, you are not all of Vought. We are a pharmaceutical company first, more than anything, which I think is a, is a new revelation to most people watching this show that had never read the comics, even if you did read the comics even. So Stan Edgar here is a big, big figure in this episode and this show in general. Now, Homelander actually makes his first appearance of the season at Translucent's funeral, which we talked about earlier. That event was worldwide, and it was watched worldwide. And again, it was about the optics more than the actual emotion, which is pretty much everything the Seven do in public. It's all about optics, has nothing to do with family or emotion, which they say that they are all about. But we all know, of course, they are not. Now, the most interesting subtext of the boys is how it addresses image versus reality and how the increasing manipulation of the former. It can sometimes be done for satirical laughs, like Annie singing, although we could see through you, it seems we hardly knew you, that killed me, at Translucent's funeral. But it also really drives the show thematically. I mean, much of this whole episode is really about trying to define character traits through marketing. Superhero super terrorist, super villain, etc. And of course, this entire show is all about how the word superhero means nothing if the people with superpowers don't embody its perceived definition, which no one here does except for maybe Starlight, which is one thing that makes this show and comic so brilliant in my opinion. Now, despite being on the run, Huey is still in touch with Annie. He's worried that they're being tracked, like, big time while he's on a train. You know, she tells him that they can't track her chip down there. He, he's having a hard time with her going out in public, like, to the Teen Choice Awards with other people other than him. And he actually believes here that if they can get their hands on Compound V, he can fix everything. Now, I think we all knew that that was pretty much not the case. But, you know, we can always revel in Huey's thoughts that maybe it would have been. Huey's, Huey's like the little baby of the show, the little innocent baby. And I think it's even in the third episode where M.M. Mother's Milk tells a Butcher that he's your canary. If your canary's dead, how are you going to know you've gone too far? I, I thought that was such a brilliant line, and I keep bringing up episode three because it, it is my absolute favorite episode of this season. And by the way, this season is going to be eight episodes again, unfortunately. I really hoped they would have bumped it up to ten, but 
we can't get everything we want, right? But Huey believes that if they get the Compound V, they'll all be okay. So he gets Starlight to blackmail Gecko in the whole Gecko scene. I, I'm not even going to talk about that. <laughs> he gets he gets Starlight to blackmail Gecko into breaking into the lab and getting a sample of Compound V, which Gecko does. Now, meanwhile, the Deep is wallowing in his misery in Columbus, Ohio, getting drunk during Translucent's televised memorial service, which was great. He later goes on a public bender at a kiddie water park. This dude is just awful. He's approached by a local soup named Eagle the Archer, who's played by Langston Kerman. Eagle brings him to a woman named Carol. At first, it seems like Eagle and Carol are kind of staging an intervention, but then the end of the scene reveals that they are pushing something called the Church of the Collective, and they claim that they can get help and get the Deep back into the Seven. The Deep is going to be an interesting character this season, given how much fun it is to watch him just be eternally, eternally punished forever, and giving the tricky tonal balance required to rehabilitate someone as awful as he is. I almost questioned why they were even going to try and do it. I mean, we all hate the Deep. He can never, I I don't think he can ever be redeemed. I I truly don't believe that. And I I don't even think he really wants to be deep down. He hates himself. He hated himself in the first season, and they just drive that home even more here, and I think it's so brilliant, and I did not know that they could even make the Deep more pathetic than he already was. Now, while the Deep works his way through the bars of Ohio, Kamiko, the boys, and all of them are trying to figure out their next step when they discover that they're in cahoots with a potential human trafficking organization. And this is where we are introduced to Kimiko's brother, who has a very Magneto or Jean Grey type power. So he enters the scene here, and he is kind of conflicted, whereas he is a super terrorist, but at the same time, he's Kimiko's brother. So it's almost like you're not really sure what to think about him here. And I thought that was a really, really brilliant dilemma that they laid out here with his character and Kimiko in general. And especially when they were in that fight in that superhero warehouse, if you want to call it that, where Butcher tries to shoot him and Huey kind of knocks him out of the way, which, man, we got to get into to their whole relationship, which really kind of seems to resolve itself with the third episode. I don't even know if I can say that because I don't think that that was enough to earn Huey's trust back. But in these first two episodes, man, they were going at it. Like, brother and sister. I mean, straight up, man and wife. I mean, they were just barking at each other. And Huey has some very, very good reasons to be upset with Butcher. As Butcher straight out told him at the end of season one, yeah, I used you, man. That's what I do. So I love that aspect of this season as it really started to flourish at the end of last season. And I really love the super terrorist aspect being Kimiko's brother and the whole dilemma that that sets up. I really like that in this first episode, and it go- it does continue on for a few more episodes. Now, we really need to get into the introduction of Stormfront here. So Stormfront shows up on the scene and pretty much tells Homelander that I am the new member of the Seven. The big guy Edgar upstairs appointed her there, once again reminding Homelander that he is not the face of Vought, He does not run Vought, and he maybe does not have as much control over all of them that he thought he did or that he thought he would have. And Homelander is furious about this. I I don't think we saw Homelander get anywhere near as butthurt, upset, and furious in the first season that we have seen here in the first three episodes of this new season. It almost makes you wonder why Homelander doesn't just go straight up, 
evil Superman slash Lex Luthor and just take over the whole world. I mean, he could if he wanted to. He does not have a weakness. The showrunners themselves said Homelander does not have a weakness. Other than a bottle of breast milk, of course. Homelander's kryptonite. If Butchie, Huey, and the boys were actually smart, they would just go round up all the breast milk in the world and just give it to Homelander, and then he would just be occupied for the rest of the time. There you go. The whole, the whole show solved right there. So in comes Stormfront as Homelander and Maeve are filming a commercial, and she very brilliantly shows up while live streaming, and I thought that was a really smart way to bring her in as an FU, there's nothing you can do, and right away she appears to be a good person, somebody totally against all the bullshit Vought brings, while also being able to maintain a true-to-yourself, no-bullshit attitude, which is what we thought she was all about at this point. Now, the final few scenes of episode one shows that Huey is lying to Annie once again to keep her from getting hurt after he has a heartfelt conversation with M.M. earlier in the episode, because Huey and Annie seem to be drifting apart again now. When she excitedly tells him about the gecko dynamic that she got him to get the Compound V and that they're going to have a sample of Compound V that they can reveal to the public, Huey is cautious, though, after what happened to Rainer, and she can tell that he is withholding again. And then, at the very end, is when Butcher shows up. He finally comes home to clean up the mess and tell them that Daddy's home. And does so with that trademark Carl Urban smirk that we all have come to adore so much, and that is really making him very popular. He already was, but man, his role as Butcher, he is just killing it here. Kill, absolutely killing it. So, episode one, I am going to give four glasses of milk out of five and I will give it a good Stanley I almost gave this an undie award but it is not the best episode of the boys ever it was an important one that really allowed us to get back into this world and, and shows us where everybody's at and here here's the thing about the boys so when the first season came out it was just adored like just everywhere everybody loved it right and then the early reviews for season two came out from the critics and they were overwhelmingly positive but then we had a lot of fan reviews that weren't quite as good still really really good reviews here's the thing though every season two of any tv show is not season one and that's why it can never be as good as season one Season one is the first time you're meeting these characters. Season one is the first time you're introduced to all this. So in every season two of every TV show you ever watch, you already know what to expect. Therefore, you are not going to be as surprised, taken aback, and oh my god, this is incredible. Even though you're still going to have that a little bit, you're never going to have it as much as you did in season one. It's like the first time you do anything, right? You're always chasing that first time feeling, and, and there's no exception here. But I think this is as good of a season one, or sorry, a season two premiere that you're going to get that really connected the dots from season one to season two, set up the rest of the season, brilliantly brought Stormfront to the front, no pun intended, maybe it was, and just overall was a great, great episode that really, you know, I almost said that really got you to crawl back into the world of the boys, but man, it didn't because that first scene really showed you, hey, remember us? Boom, ripping heads off, blood everywhere. Just absolutely great. So I'm going to stick to a good Stanley here because I'm comparing this first episode to the next two, which I thought were even better. So episode two of the boys titled Proper Preparation and Planning puts our boy Carl Urban, Billy Butcher, front and center after a tragically Billy Light season premiere. That That is another con 
that I had about that first episode, which we we did not have really any Billy Butcher, but there was a good organic reason for that, as we learn in episode two here. Because while there is clearly a lot more story to be uncovered about what happened after Homelander dropped Butcher off on Becca's front lawn at the end of season one, right now, we at least know the immediate aftermath. So after passing out, Billy woke up in the parking lot of a chain restaurant called Tony Cicero's. And he very quickly goes to his CIA instructions and training and quickly writes down everything he can possibly remember about the house Homelander dropped him at with Becca and every detail he can think of on a placemat with a crown. Skipping forward to the present, Billy has a plan for his boys, building upon what they had already been working on in episode one, while he refused to keep them in the loop, of course. Now, attending Rainer's funeral, and oh my god, how could I forget to mention the head-popping scene? I forgot to mention that! That took me by surprise! Me and my wife both jumped back and were like, what the fuck?! I mean, I did not see that coming. When I saw the blood coming out of her nose, I was like, oh shit, okay, something's going on here. But I, I did not expect for her head to go pop like, like a like a freaking bag of popcorn, man. It was nuts. That, that was a brilliant boys scene that you just expect to see from this show, but maybe not expected to see at that moment. But that is how they so brilliantly pull off these surprising scenes like that. And I, and I, I just cannot believe I forgot to mention it. But it is at her funeral that he reconnects with his old mentor, Grace, and makes a deal to retrieve the super terrorist that was spotted last week and bring him into her custody. Now, meanwhile, Starlight is waiting on Gecko to slip her some Compound V to reveal to the world. But in the meantime, she is being kept busy by Vought's newest publicity push. This one, a female-centric celebration of Stormfront joining the Seven, complete with a catchphrase, Girls Get It. Done. This is one of those sequences that is so funny on the surface and hilarious for anyone who has ever participated in a publicity junket, especially for a major Hollywood production, and Stormfront is a bit of a wild card at this point, but the shared experience of vapid junket interviews and the ensuing boredom and frustration between them seems to enable something of a bonding moment between them, at, at first of course, and at the very least, can we all agree that women uniforms deserve pockets. Something that is brilliantly connected to Starlight later on when Gecko slips her the compound V and she is forced to stash it in Stormfront's backpack because, what do you know, she doesn't have a pocket. Something that she actually pulls off really nicely, though it's really not clear how much Stormfront knows. It's not clear if Stormfront really knew that she did that because how could she not? But maybe she does, maybe she was trying to help Starlight. That's what I thought at first. However, at the end of episode three, those thoughts were just thrown out the window. Now, Starlight and A-Train have a remarkable relationship at this point. A-Train returns to health after being hooked up on a ventilator, and this might be a serious problem for Annie at this point, based on what he remembers about the accident that incapacitated him at the end of season one. The answer appears to be more than enough, though, as he definitely remembers her helping your traitor fucking boyfriend escape. At the end of the episode, he's definitely ready to expose her, but she has her own ammunition and threatens to reveal his use of Compound V, which apparently is still hurting him very much today as he keeps getting these miniature heart attacks, if you want to call them that, and not to mention the way that Compound V led to the death of his girlfriend Popclaw. That's two instances of blackmail in just two episodes. Starlight is getting pretty damn good at blackmail, wouldn't you say? 
Now, we jump to a scene with Maeve here, and this is one of the complaints I have about the boys in general. I don't think Maeve is explored enough, and I know you have a ton of characters to get into. I just don't feel like we're invested in Maeve quite as much as maybe the show wants us to be at this point, because I think her best scene was the airplane scene in season one, where she just could not let those people die, but yet she has to anyways, because Homelander... Homelander definitely could have saved those people. I truly believe that. I think he had that plan all along to let that plane go down. And I think Maeve thought this as well. And I just don't think we're invested enough in her character. Now, that that definitely can change here. But that is not to say that the scene we had with her in the hospital here, where she's talking about the things that Homelander has done and makes her do, is not gut-wrenching and really unfortunate to hear for her. And it really just goes to push the fact that Homelander truly does have control over the Seven, even if he doesn't have total control over Vought in general. Speaking of Homelander, he is still hanging out at Becca's house after popping in by the end of the last episode, and he attempts to bond with Ryan, his son, as far as we know anyway. I have seen enough TV that, you know, you may want a DNA test before I accept that as a fact, because I think there was enough left out about Becca and Homelander's relationship in the beginning of season one that maybe they can insert some more plot-wrenching things to push that further along. I I don't know. There's something about that whole relationship that speaks to me. Maybe Homelander's not the dad. Maybe Vought somehow got a hold of her and threatened her and used her as an experimentation. I mean, remember, they tried to keep this from Homelander. They tried to keep this under wraps totally. Becca seemed to be okay and go along with it. I I don't know. I'm not saying Becca was along with all of this. I'm just saying something fishy about this whole family dynamic is just bothering me. I think there's something else that's going to come out of this. But back to the home where Homelander is hanging out with Becca and his assumed son. Being a dad myself, it made it very hard to watch Becca have to go through this and know that there is absolutely nothing she can do about Homelander trying to raise this kid. And and the way he's doing it almost makes you disgusted. It almost makes you disgusted as well, but it also kind of makes you feel for Homelander because of the way that he was brought up in a lab, and you would almost think that that alone would make Homelander want to approach raising this kid differently, but I think we all know that Homelander is way, way past any kind of redemption or any kind of good thoughts or anything whatsoever. I think what they're trying to drive home with these scenes is that Homelander feels so alone because not even the, the most powerful members of the Seven are anywhere close to as powerful as he is, yet now he finally does have something that he might be able to relate with, and he believes it's his son. So I think that is what they are really trying to drive home here. But man, it was really hard watching Becca have to deal with all of this when her son there is just being primed by one of the worst people you could ever imagine in the entire world. And I really like these scenes. I think they are really really well done. Eric Kripke, if I'm saying his last name right, you know how I mess that up all the time. He is so damn good at running this show. I mean, I gotta say, the the way that he has adapted it, the way that he has run it, just the plot lines and the character issues and the character traits and everything that he brings forth so perfectly balanced is just genius to me. And I, I honestly cannot wait to see what he does next after the boys, but hopefully... He continues doing the boys for a very long time. So let's now head over and see what the Deep is doing. He is taking the advice of his church of the collective friend Eagle by going deep into his psyche with the help of 
psychedelic mushrooms, which lead to a very intense experience in which the Deep's own gills, voiced by Boy's superfan Patton Oswalt, try to connect with them. I, Patton Oswalt, man, I love him. His work on Happy was phenomenal. His work, his voice work in particular everywhere is so good. I also loved his appearances on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I thought he did great there. So, the duo end up, or the trio, I guess you could call it, the two gills and the deep, end up singing You Are So Beautiful to Me together. The ultimate climax of this episode is focused on the boys, though, as Billy manages to get some information that leads them to the secret headquarters for the group that brought in Kimiko's brother, a group known as Shining Light, which Kimiko recognizes as the ones who tortured her into getting her powers. Now, Kenji, her brother, does appear at the party supply store, but his reunion with Kimiko gets cut short when Billy tries to get off a shot and Huey stops him. And that scene does happen in the second episode instead of the first episode, like I may have implied when I was going through the first episode. And if you can't tell, I'm kind of blending all these episodes together because that's how everybody's watching them. You're, you're not sitting down and watching one and then a week later you're going to watch two and then three. No, we're all binging what we can of this show while we can. So that is one reason why I'm doing it this way. Also, because since I watched all three of them together, it actually is kind of hard to remember what scenes took place in which episodes. And I even watched all three episodes uh, multiple times. And I'm still having a hard time remembering because it, it just, it all runs together so smoothly. And I think that is just another, another pro to add to the boys show in general. So following Billy's missed shot, Kenji and Kimiko, they, they run off. They run off together, and they end up in this brutal superpowered battle that ends with her subduing him with a chokehold. And then the boys show up, and they load their prisoner into the van, and Billy warns Huey by decking him and just knocking him out, further complicating the two's relationship. Now, some things I want to mention about episode two. Aya Cash is absolutely stealing the show, especially with this episode with her additional screen time. But her speech for celebrating the wonders of Pippi Longstocking, concluding with the killer line, Pippi Longstocking would bite a D. That's for damn sure. It, it's an all-timer, guys. It, it is great. The way that she she paired chicks and dicks, the way that she talked about Pippi Longstocking, the way she tells Starlight to bite some D off, I mean, it's, just, it's just making us all fall in love with Stormfront. But then in this next episode, we might be falling out of love with her. I, I don't know. I'm just falling more in love with her as, as more evil that she gets. And obviously, we're about to get a lot more into that. Also, for episode two here, the boys showrunner Eric Kripke recently told TV Line that, quote, the gills were not the thing we first came up with. It was actually, boy, we really need the deep to really confront what a piece of shit he is and why. He's sort of part of this new church, and he needs to kind of explore who it, who he is. We've known for a long time how much he hates himself, and he takes it out on women, and we just wanted to explore that. He then added, Honestly, the conversation just started there, and who could he talk to about this? Who knows his history? And then from there, it went to, Oh, he should, like, take drugs and maybe talk to himself. He said, I never know who pitches what in the room with this big group of brilliant people, but someone did say his gills should talk to him. It was so good. I thought that was a cool little bit of information that he dropped because I had wondered how that scene came to be. And, and it worked out perfectly with the way that the Deep hates the way his body looks and how he revealed that in the first season. I, just more brilliant stuff coming here from the showrunner. 
Now, before jumping into this third episode, I have to mention something that the show is making fun of. And the, the boys' TV series goes way down rabbit holes by taking shots at all types of elements of superhero culture and the increasingly corporate nature of comic books as a whole. Even in The Boys Season 1, there were several jibes that were made at Marvel's expense, with the VCU, Vought Cinematic Universe, mirroring Disney's mammoth MCU franchise. There were gags about how everyone loves a team-up and releasing sequel after sequel that felt very much aimed towards the superhero movie subgenre in 2019, something that has grown exponentially since The Boys released in comic book form. And Season 2 turns the screw even further with the deep encountering a note-perfect takedown of the MCU's Hawkeye with Eagle. And those similarities and comparisons and pot shots are taken all throughout this show. But one of the best ones happens in the opening episodes of The Boys Season 2. One of the best real-world jokes comes by them referencing Zack Snyder's Batman vs. Superman. The mocking begins in episode 1, actually, The Big Ride, when the boys meet up with Rainer underneath a billboard that features a Vought advertisement for their new movie, Dawn of the Seven. <laughs> Aside from the title, which is clearly a nod to Dawn of Justice, the film's logo is extremely similar to Batman vs. Superman's with the red symbol on a stone gray background, and even the fonts are eerily alike. But the joke continues here in episode three, uh, the, the episode Over the Hill with the Swords of a Thousand Men, where a Vought writer is pitching a movie concept to the Seven and their business representatives, a visibly enthralled Ashley. This entire sequence is told through elaborate comic book panel storyboards, and it is a direct reference to Zack Snyder's style of filmmaking. With 300 and even to a lesser extent Watchmen, Zack Snyder had used comic panels from the source material as his storyboards, and The Boys seems to play on that with its movie pitch scene. The whole idea is then revealed to be the big screen formation of The Seven in Vought's, quote, Dawn of the Seven, unquote, movie. And just to ram the Batman v Superman comparison home further, the writer asks his audience to imagine hearing a Hans Zimmer score in the background. <laughs> Hans Zimmer, of course, composed the soundtracks to Batman v Superman alongside Junkie XL. But, ma'am. And since the MCU took the brunt of the boys' satire in Season 1, it's perhaps maybe only fair to turn to the DCEU in Season 2. And the boys does not relent on this, and it is absolutely great. And the MCU and the DCEU should actually be thankful that they're doing this, because in a way, it's a nod to just how much their franchises have had an impact on the world as a whole. So... I will give The Boys Season 2, Episode 2, four gills out of five, giving it another very good Stanley. I really wanted to give this one, an, I wanted to give all of these an Undie Award, and, and actually all three together are definitely an Undie Award for me. I wanted to give all three of these an Undie Award, but I feel like Episode 3 stood out so much more than the other two that I felt like it might be the only one to deserve that award, so I could not give it to Episode 2, but it can get a good Stanley and four gills out of five. So, Episode 3, Over the Hill with the Swords of a Thousand Men. This is the episode, chicks and dicks. This is the one right here. This is one of the best episodes of the boys' series in general, and a true turning point for Season 2, and a true turning point for Stormfront as well, in a very big turning point for Vought as a whole, as this is the episode where Compound V is discovered 
and everybody now knows that superheroes are created in a lab. So, with episode three here, it's not a good day to be a whale in the world of the boys. Lucy, rest in peace and pieces. Thanks to Billy Butcher, he and his fellow boys end this episode covered in the evidence of Lucy's tragic demise. But that is getting way, way ahead of things as episode three takes a while to build up to that explosive moment because we start out on a pretty nice boat named My Big Wet Dream. It's no below decks yacht, but it still does a decent job of accommodating five fugitives and a super terrorist, I must say. Although calling Kimiko's brother Kenji a super terrorist may not be quite fair, and we learn an awful lot about their lives prior to superpowers as Kimiko tries to convince him to trust her, and he tries to get her to see his side, which I thought was a really, really good contrast between the two to throw up against each other. The conversations don't end with her taking off the duct tape or chains holding him captive, however. It even might have furthered the complication of their relationship, if you want to look at it that way. Homelander is still putting in time with Becca and Ryan, trying to play a paternal role in his own special sociopathic way. But at the end of episode 2, he told Ryan that having superpowers means that he's better than other people. And while Ryan, his son might not have been completely convinced, he's still open to spending time with his dad. Okay, well, that stops being quite so true. After Homelander, hoping to trigger Ryan's superpowers, pushes him off the roof. And we all saw that coming, right? Right after the, aw, buddy, you finally called me dad moment, which was kind of touching in its own sociopathic way. More importantly, though, after Homelander grabs Becca's wrist, Ryan reacts by manifesting both some super strength as well as Homelander's trademark blazing stare, which very likely means that he really is Homelander's son. Still maybe not completely sure about that, but hey, who knows? Still waiting on those test results, right? Now, maybe Ryan got his superpowers the way everyone else did, via the secret administration of Compound V, something which is about to become common knowledge very soon in this episode, and this is where the scene happens with the Dawn of the Seven pitch that we so hilariously talked about a little bit earlier. It is in this scene that Ashley receives an emergency message that blows up into a true potential PR disaster for Vought. The news is about the existence of Compound V, and that is now out into the world, which in thanks is to the off-screen workings of the thrilled Starlight. Which actually makes me wonder if there is a reason why this happened off-screen, and they did not include it. I can't imagine why they would cut that out unless they were trying to fit everything else in, but there was a lot of stuff in this episode, not a lot, but a few things in, in the beginning, at least, of this episode that you didn't necessarily need, and I think they could have fit it in there, which really makes me wonder if maybe there is a, a good reason why they haven't shown how that happened quite yet, but I could be wrong about that. Now, let's skip past the deep learning of this and all the other heroes who didn't already know learning about this and jump straight to the whole boat thing. So, the boys are handling this news very, very well. Everybody is thrilled about this, but Billy is not in the mood to celebrate because he is focused on his goal of reuniting with his wife, very similar to his goal of destroying Homelander in the first season, which makes him not care or celebrate, or cheer on, or give any kind of nod to Huey whatsoever, and I think it is this scene right here 
that truly breaks Huey's soul and breaks everything he has kind of been working towards. And it's just, it's tragic and it's really devastating. And, and Huey really portrays that very well through his facial expressions. However, we will find out that Billy was actually maybe right to be thinking this way because their plan to hide out on the boat goes abruptly wrong when an NYPD helicopter blows their cover and Kenji's escape attempt blows the craft out of the air. Grace tells them to bring their target to a CIA safe house, and as they prepare to return to land, that's when the Deep and his aquatic friends, including Lucy the Sperm Whale, show up to try to take them down. Thanks to a tip-off the Deep got from the yet-unseen head of the Church of the Collective. And I gotta mention here with the Deep coming back, I know it's supposed to be a funny scene. I know it's not really supposed to be drama-inducing or inspirational or trying to get you pumped up, but yet they still managed to do that. I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I almost feel like the scene with the Deep showing up with the sharks and the whales and the way he comes out of the water was actually almost better than a lot of Aquaman's own arrivals in his own Aquaman movie, especially the Justice League movie. Somehow, the Deep is a better Aquaman in that scene than the entire Aquaman movie, and I don't really truly mean that. I, I loved the Aquaman movie, but the music and, and the drama that they built up with him here was great, whether it was intended or not. I thought was awesome. The deep coming back was great. Now, of course, that totally gets derailed when the boy's speedboat goes straight through Lucy the sperm whale. Rest in peace, Lucy. And the deep gets knocked out cold. And now this is where Huey finds himself in a whale. Now, I said his breaking point was earlier, but this right here was the true, true breaking point. As a mother's milk, M.M., has to work pretty hard to even get him moving again. And, and even Frenchie has to physically force him to move through the tunnels that they go into later on. So when Starlight catches up with him in the storm drain, both his fight-and-flight responses have pretty much been drained. And when Homelander finds them and orders Starlight to kill Huey after he came out of the shadows like that, that was an awesome, awesome scene, he basically gives her the go-ahead. He basically sits there and he is okay with dying at that moment. Now, fortunately, Billy arrives just in time and finally steps up to stop her and incapacitate Homelander. And this is the moment right here where Billy redeems himself with Huey. I do not know if that's going to continue throughout the rest of the season, but it's definitely a start. Now, unfortunately, once the boys seem to be home free, Stormfront finds them all in this right here is one of my all-time favorite scenes of the boys' TV series. This scene is pivotal. This is a turning point, and this is a straight-up showcase for what Stormfront is all about and what she can really, really do. Before Kenji can make his move to escape, she slams him into a nearby housing project, like through the walls of apartments, with no acknowledgement of any collateral damage she leaves behind her. She casually then kills residents, surprisingly kills them. I don't think any of us saw that coming, unless you read the comics, I guess. But she kills all of these residents, who all seem to be people of color, for what it's worth, and she chases after her target. In short, she's gone full-on Terminator, and while Kimiko makes sure it's a two-to-one fight, Kenji makes the choice to save his sister. And ultimately, he gets brutally murdered by Stormfront after she straight up just cracks his hands open. Blood goes spurting everywhere. 
Can't do your magic little hand thingy anymore? How come? And how about that scene through the apartment complex when she is just zapping things and blowing shit up? I mean, all of a sudden she goes from a likable, you know, fuck you Vought character to, oh my god, this bitch is worse than Homelander. I mean, the last words that Kim Ji hears here are Stormfront saying fucking yellow bastard, which that paired with the way that she killed all the black people in that apartment with the way that she just completely lit up that whole complex shows that not only is she cold-hearted and does not care about human lives, but she's also a piece of shit racist as well. And if that wasn't enough to show how evil she is, she then goes on to tell him, open your eyes, I love to see it when the light goes out. I mean, this bitch is cold. Her and Homelander would be perfect together. I mean, my God, although it doesn't look like that's going to happen because at the end of the episode, Homelander looks very upset that Stormfront is now front and center and the music that they played at the end of the episode while she's up there at the podium was great, really showed that she is the new face and man, I do not know what this is going to make Homelander do. As if it, I, I wasn't already intrigued enough about this show. I mean, brilliant stuff. Episode 3, boom. Just the way that they drove that home with Stormfront. I had to watch that scene three times, and then I had to watch it again this morning, like right when I woke up. That was the first thing I did, was play that scene again. Because just the way that Stormfront haphazardly goes, casually goes from a good person who wants to reveal the secrets of Vought and wants to stay true to herself and stand up for women to a straight-up cold-hearted racist. I, I mean, I, I hate to even praise it, but man, it, it was brilliant, and it was a very, very well-done job by Aya Cash, who is straight-up killing it as Stormfront here in The Boys Season 2. She is giving Homelander a serious run for his money, and that is why she is my favorite character so far in these first three episodes and you know what? It's funny because episode three, let me tell you how good episode three is. And this might not even make any sense. In fact, I don't think it does, but whatever I'm going to tell you anyways. Episode three was so good that if it was only on par with the other two first episodes of this season, I would have given all three of them undie awards, right? But since episode three outshined the other two so well and was such a good turning point for this for the season and for Stormfront herself, it was so good that I did not feel that it was right to rate the other two episodes as high as that one. So I just couldn't do it. So it's like it was so good and ended up hurting the whole series rating as a whole, but that's not the case because I am definitely rating all three episodes of The Boys Season 2 that we have right now an Undie Award for sure. Guys, I hope you enjoyed these first three episodes as much as I did because, man, did I enjoy them. Man, am I happy this show is back. And, and it seems like every year we get another new favorite all-time superhero show in some kind of way, right? Like The Mandalorian. Titans was one of those for me, season one anyways. Uh, speaking of season one, we may have a special guest coming from that show here soon, but I can't divulge that yet. But The Boys is fantastic. I am so happy that this comic was adapted. They need to keep adapting Garth and his comics because the man is a legend. He absolutely is and he really drives home some really, really good points in all of his comics. They are all so good. Most of them are really brutal and gory. But it's all of that while at the same time towing a beautiful pointed line that he's always trying to point out and show you 
what he believes and what he thinks. And most of the time, his thoughts seem to jive with the rest of the country, even though the country is so divided right now, I couldn't tell you who thinks what at the moment. But trying to keep politics out of this thing, The Boys Season 2 has gotten off to a great start. And with this third episode, it just gives me insane amounts of hope that somehow a TV series Season 2 can be better than Season 1 if Season 1 was so good like The Boys Season 1 was. Because like I talked about earlier in the episode, that is... I would say impossible to do. And I I don't even know if this season gets this good throughout the rest of the season that it could still be as good as season one because of the reasons I mentioned earlier with, you know, season ones of TV shows being the first time you experience something. But man, they have come as close as you possibly can with the addition of Stormfront and with everything else they're doing. And I just... I I can't wait to see if Huey and Butcher's relationship is going to continue to flourish in the right direction like it started to at the end of episode three, or if Huey is going to have some more problems with Butcher, because that's just who Butcher is. He is a phenomenal character. I love Carl Urban. I love this whole show. I really don't have a lot of complaints about it. Not really at all. I mean, I can't think of much. I mean, the, the pacing is good. The depth of characters is great. The exploration is phenomenal. The brutality, okay, that's one thing. The brutality is great, and I absolutely love it. But I do think that they are teetering on the edge of maybe doing it a little too much. Because if you do it too much, you take away the surprise and the WTF aspect of it because you become desensitized to it. At the same time, it did it so much in season one that you would almost expect it to do it more in season two. So maybe it would be a disappointment if they don't bring more of it in season two, which it seems like they are definitely doing with Lucy the sperm whale and, you know, Black Noir's earlier earlier uh, rampage through that super terrorist place. And, and and I thought it was so funny when Homelander was in that pitch meeting with Ashley and them and he keeps talking about, nope, see, supervillain. Supervillain sounds better. And it's just the show continues to be so good in its own merit while also making fun of all of the other comic book properties out there you would almost wonder, like, why would they even do that? Because they are a comic book movie, but they're kind of not. Comic book TV show, sorry, but they're kind of not. They really aren't, but they are at the same time. It's insane. It's insane. The the Boys is fantastic, and I'm not sure we are ever going to get another show quite like it. So, did you guys enjoy it as much as I did? I hope so. Did you guys enjoy this review? I, I certainly hope you did. If you did, please go subscribe to the show. Go leave a review. Reviews help the show out tremendously, and I need more of them. I keep saying this. I'm a new show. This is, what, the seventh episode, even though I'm not titling it episode seven. I think it's like the seventh episode I've done so far. We need to get some more reviews out there. Get some more people privy to this show. I put a lot of work into it. I appreciate it. If you feel like you need to, If you feel like you want to, I do do this full-time. You can support the show by tipping at a tip jar link at the bottom of the show notes. If you do so, and you email me and show me you did so, pick a topic, any topic you want, anything, and I will do a 15- to 30-minute episode all about it, naming you for you that you will privately receive just for yourself and whoever else you would like to share it to. So that is what I can do for you if you tip the show. If you do so, me and my family thank you more than you'll ever know Just thank you for listening to this. I appreciate it. I put a lot of work into these things, so the fact that anybody listens to this is great and drives me to continue to do it. Thank you so much, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the boys. I hope you enjoyed the review. I appreciate it. Do not forget 
to save the world one podcast at a time here with Pop Culture Underground. And don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pop C Underground. All right, guys, keep things diabolical. I appreciate it. And I will see you all in a couple of days on the next episode of Pop C Underground. Later. Later.